Hey guys, and welcome back to the Skullcast for episode 56. We are back to wrap up our discussion of volume 12, uh, which is, you know, places us right in the middle of the eclipse, just as the God Hand had landed. It's just me and Azil this time. We might get Griffith on here or not. Uh, not sure how that's going to work out. He's having trouble connecting, but if not, you know, we'll just proceed as normal. This is one of the most emotional parts of the series for me personally. Uh, people have asked to me in the past on this, on this show, uh, what's your favorite part of the series? You know, and that's, to me, that's a almost impossible task, but my mind almost invariably goes toward this, the moment of sacrifice when Griffith says the words I sacrifice and that whole kind of like slow moment building up to that, the, you know, walking through him, his mind. And then Griffith thinking on, you know, the ripple, the ripple effect of his dream, basically the process of convincing him and then his resolute answer. All of that to me is one of the high points of the series. Uh, and it still strikes me now going through it just for this reread, you know, it hits me in the same ways it always has. So just a powerful moment for it, the series. Well, I think objectively it's pretty powerful, you know, I mean, even if. That's not your favorite part of the story. It's uh, it's very powerful, and <clears throat> for the development of Griffiths in particular, it's like the culmination of his development as a character. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I think. So um, we don't need to discuss the cover. We already did that. We don't discuss Entropy. We already did that. So we can just zoom right ahead to uh, where we left off, which was right as the God Hand, uh, all four of them have appeared uh, on that big full page spread. Just about the halfway point of the volume, a little bit more than halfway. So if you're following along, that's where we are. Uh, the God Hand having just appeared, Guts gets his first full view of these, you know, supernatural beings in this supernatural place. And he says to himself, uh, are they gods or are they demons? And that, that dichotomy is repeated throughout the series and uh, in a number of ways, both, you know, in word form and also visually. Like we have, for example, Slan, when she appears, she has feathers at first, which then turn to, you know, bat wings. And then there's the whole idea of Griffith having the, the white and dark falcon persona. Uh, when the, the, the God Hand first appear in volume three, there's the, they're described as the guardian angels of desire. That's at least the English translation of it. So, and actually I think the, the apostles also refer to them as angels as well. So, um, I mean, what do we make of that, of Miura combining these two elements? Uh, it's also paralleled by Griffith whenever he and Guts are talking about uh, Zod's appearance in Volume 5. Actually, be the beginning of Volume 6, maybe? I can't recall. But they're on the the ledge out there in, in Wyndham. And I think Griffith says something about gods, demons, what's the difference, or something like that. Gods or devils, what's the difference? And, I mean, I think that's kind of the takeaway in terms of Mira creating that dichotomy between good and evil or supernatural beings that basically meddle with human destiny. And to that end, they may as well be the same thing. That uh, there are supernatural creatures that humanity can't do anything about that make humanity powerless. So whether their intentions are good or evil, what's the difference in terms of what Griffith's stance is in that moment? That's me reading a little bit into it, but that's how I've always taken that to be. Uh, Azil, do you have any answer on why he chose that angel slash demons thing? Well, I think I think there are several uh, several angles on it. Uh, one of which is what you said. You know, I think yeah, it's a uh, it's definitely a good interpretation. The fact that their actions transcend uh, human comprehension and essentially what humans can do about it. So I I think yeah, that, that's uh, that's a thing. And the other would be that. 
uh, I think it's a, in a way a take on religion, you know, saying that uh, things are not as simple as just saying, you know, like there's two forces opposing themselves, good and bad, or that, that kind of stuff. But, you know, this world is darker and, uh, <clears throat> well, you know, there's just how to say, depending on how you view them. Uh, they can seem to be angels, like for the apostles, but for the average guy, you know, they would be seen as being demonic and evil. And, uh, and, and I think the eclipse kind of, in a way, it kind of, you know, like solidifies what we already knew is that they are definitely just pure evil. And, you know, the way, like, you know, fulfilling wishes and that kind of stuff, what's associated with the Beherit and the ceremonies, it's more like, you know, a sugar coating on the fact, you know, they are just in the business of, you know, evil stuff. I'll also dabble a little bit into, uh, I've never fully seen any of the Hellraiser movies. I can't think I've seen like the first, like hour of the first movie, but I recall just reading a bit about kind of the philosophy behind that whole world, uh, that was yeah. created. And, you know, it seems to me that basically, in the afterlife or in, in terms of the supernatural beings that are, that govern the afterlife, there is no heaven or hell. There is only hell. There is only this hellish existence beyond, you know, human life. And, and in that sense, that kind of mirrors, uh, at least the, what we've been seen shown of the details of the afterlife or what the afterlife is like. And so in that sense, angels and demons may as well be the same thing as well. Well, yeah, I think there's a, how to say, there's, there's definitely an inspiration from a Hellraiser, you know, uh, when it comes to the God Hand. That being said, I think it's a bit more uh, complicated in Berserk because we know now, you know, at this stage of the story, it's hinted at earlier, but now we know for sure that there's not just hell, you know, there's actually a, a place, you know, there are other places, other things, other, you know, things that aren't evil in that world, in the astral world and stuff. It's just that uh, the focus hasn't been on them so far. So I, I think it's a, it's a, a bit different, but yeah, it's uh, very much informed by uh, her razor and, and the way it's done. And uh, when it comes to Gone Hand, or at least when it comes to humanity, well, yeah, they're pretty much, you know, that's what uh, is in store for them. Right, you're right. It is more nuanced because of what Flora says of how human souls are divided according to karma. I mean, that's the most explanation we get in terms of an alternative to something like the vortex of souls. But you're what, right, it what, is more nuanced. Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say one thing that's interesting is... uh just focusing on, on this volume and the events and not, you know, dabbling in the rest of the series. Uh, the philosophy of the God Hand is quite interesting in regards to why they are, in, in, you know, using evil, why they do that. And it's because, you know, uh, how to say destiny transcends, uh, the understanding of mankind, you know, like, you know, the, the laws of the world, you know, transcend, you know, what mankind can do about it. And so in order to take control of that, in order to rise above it, uh, you know, man uses evil. You know, that, that's their uh, logic for it. Their, uh, how to say, uh, rationalization. And so, uh, you know, I, I find that interesting in regards to that. Is that it's a, they justify, you know, their actions and uh, their powers and everything by uh, the, the saying it's the only way for man to rise above, you know, his own destiny. Yeah, you've, you've jumped to Void's big line right before the sacrifice yeah. happens. And yeah, that's, it's a, it's a huge, it's a huge indication of how they rationalize their existence and even, even the nature of their power. Um, 
I see that Void's line, basically, uh, by the way, it's, uh, if it be reason that destiny transcends human intellect and makes playthings of children, it's cause and effect or causality that a child bear his evil and confront destiny. And I've always... Being, yeah, I think that translation is not that, not that good, by the way. Okay. That, uh, which part is it? I mean, how would you have explained it? Then? Well, I, I don't have it, you know, like under my eyes right now, but... It's not exactly, I, I know that because I checked it uh, okay. a bit earlier and I found it was a bit, uh, you know, awkward. The wording is not, not that good, but it, it's on the forum somewhere. Okay. But basically, I mean, how I thought that is basically is if, if distant, if destiny is beyond human reach, then there's an opportunity to transcend your humanity and by using yeah. it. You know, it's, it's the same, uh, it's, you know, it equals what's uh, said in, uh, volume five. Mm-hmm. And when we see the, the sword and beret and, and stuff, the hand holding the beret, is that you know, essentially it's, if it's a law of the world, you know, and by reason in this case, it means, you know, a law of the world, you know, uh, I mean, that's, that's uh, what the word means in Japanese, mm. uh, that humans, you know, that, fa- you know, destiny or fate transcends uh, human understanding, intellect, whatever. Then it's, uh, how to say, it's logical or, you know, whatever, that uh, humans would use evil you know, to, you know, rise above that or combat it or whatever. And what's significant there is that evil being described as a form of power and not necessarily yeah. a, a moral choice or anything like that. But it's basically there's this available power that you can tap into through the, through the process of this ceremony. More yeah, well, it's, it's, a, it's also something we've talked about before, but in this case, the word you know, in Japanese, it doesn't just mean evil as mm-hmm. in, you know, mm-hmm. like the moral concept of what's good or bad, but it refers specifically to evil power. So, right. um, you know, yeah, when, when they receive evil, it's a, it's evil power. It's, you know, evil magic, whatever you want it to be. But uh, it's not just by being a bad man, you get, you know, more power. It's, you know, really receiving something, a power. And, it, uh, yeah. it bums me out that that distinction isn't more clear in the Dark Horse translation, that, that it's purely evil, because I do think that's a stickling point for a lot of just uh, English readers. Uh, I, don't yeah, think it's, know, I don't think it's quite characterized that way in the, in, the, in the default Dark Horse translation. You wouldn't pick that up necessarily just by reading yeah, it. Yeah, well, you know, to be frank, uh, there's many things in the Dark Horse translations that aren't that good. You know, I mean, sure. speaking globally, it's uh, pretty mediocre and, uh, you know... In regards to specific things, like, you know, that line of voids and all the stuff like that. So sometimes it's just bad and confusing and sometimes it's outright wrong, you know, or, you know, mistranslated. So it's just, you know, what's the problem is, of course, they have, a, they probably have a very low budget and mm-hmm. they have some guy walking, you know, like he must not earn much doing that. So he does it as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. And the consequence is that uh, it's pretty shitty, you know. And of course, they probably haven't hired the best man for the job either. So you know, it's just a, a culmination of all these things combined that makes it not that good. So, right. <clears throat> unfortunately, yeah, many. And there's also, you know, other than that, beyond that, there's the fact that uh, it, you know, it's complicated to translate Japanese into a Western language. And so, oftentimes, I think you, you have things that just can't be properly translated i mean it's like i don't know like the name of the beret that uh you know is used during the eclipse mm-hmm. you know ikayo no yobimizu or you know what uh skull knight calls is a sword technique all that kind of stuff even the you know skull knight name in itself you know there's always many things that are that are lost you know many subtleties and uh <clears throat> you can't really do anything about that yeah it's true you have to draw a line at some point 
Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, you could always put footnotes. And if I had to actually oversee a master translation project, that's what I'd do. I'd make it the best I can while it's still being, you know, how to say, proper English, you know, something that can be read and sound cool and not just sound academic. But, you know, I'd put uh, footnotes at the end or, I don't know, at the end of the page or maybe at the end of the volume and just detail things for the people who want to know more, who want to understand more deeply what's going on. So that way, you know, I, I think that's the best best possible solution for that. It's going beyond the scope of this episode, but uh, I've been reading Monster by Viz. It's called the, the Perfect Edition of Monster, so it's like a high-page quality. It's a larger size volume. At the end of each volume, it actually uh, lists out every single sound effect and every single Japanese word in two separate sections, like an appendix, to give context for what the meanings of those are, uh, which I always thought was really impressive. Like, they actually, you know, chronicled all the individual sound effects at the, at the end instead of trying to explain it in, like, the margins or something like that, you know. It, it leaves it the print so you can read it naturally, and if you want to know more, you can refer to the appendix, so. Yeah, well, yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty much what I had in mind. Yeah. Anyway, we'll continue since we've made a total of one page of progress since we started on this, this reread, but we will move right along. Uh, the God Hand have appeared, and as we said, Guts says, think, thinks to himself, all these angels are gods or demons. Uh, just then, uh, the God, sorry, the apostles are cheering as if it's like the Super Bowl. You know, they're just going, <laughs> oh, there's this massive round of applause, not applause, but you know, they're screaming and, uh, and approval, and you know, guts yeah. says like, "What's going on?" You know, all this this noise happening around them, these cheering people. Uh, Void... I think it's Carcass actually who's. Uh... Is it? Oh yeah, you're right. I see the little yeah. point. Yeah. Void begins speaking, and what I like about this is just the the focus on his mouth, as if you know who is coming from, and you know his mouth is not moving. You know, his jaw is clenched, and yet words are coming out. You know, similar to how the Skull Knight speaks as well. Maybe he is a skull knight. Fuck, I need to cut that. That's stupid. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> Void, I like how he treats this whole process. You know, that, uh, first of all, he calls them lambs throughout this whole scenario. It's a kind of a, a characteristic word that he uses to describe humans. Almost as if they're, you know, just, I mean, the, the blind white sheep the, and the black sheep analogy we've well, heard yeah. later they're on. They're just waiting for the slaughter, you know. Right. And also, I mean... It's a, a, the very obvious symbolism there is that humanity is being led along a path without its knowledge, you know, similar to sheep being led. Mm-hmm. Yep. But anyway, I, I like the, the imagery here also avoids cloak. Just again, I talk, talked about this in the last part, how you only get highlights of it. It's as if the whole thing is just engulfed in darkness and you just get the sheen of it coming off from the, 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 the light of the eclipse behind him. You get yeah. little highlights of it and it's most evident in his hands, the way his hands you don't quite see them until there's a highlight on the the area. So it just gives the impression it's just, you know, super, super dark substance that he's created out of. Yeah, it's so dark that there's a, it actually reflects light, you know. Yeah, exactly. And uh, he tells Griffith that he is the he's consecrated by the laws of causality. And it's interesting to note Griffith's reaction throughout this whole exchange as he's learning how special he is, or at least... How special he is in the minds of these supernatural creatures. You know, he actually seems bewildered by it, not necessarily hopeful or anything I like know. that. You know, I think he looks <laughs> co- completely confused. Like there's that panel, you know, the first one. Yeah. You know, where he's, you know, he looks like he's just, you know, baffled. Like, you mm-hmm. know, what? Right. I'm marking down a pause point because Griff did just come on, so yeah, I'm going to invite I know. him. I, I saw. 
So as we were saying, Griffith basically looks bewildered by the whole proceedings. Uh, that's the only kind of cue, emo- emotional cue we get from Griffith about the whole process uh, until the actual moment of the, the sacrifice. Uh, and we'll talk about his facial expressions more. I'm just talking in generalities about how he's responding to what's happening. Him being the star of the show, that kind of thing. Anyway, uh, we see uh, Griffith and the others responding to what's happening with the God Hand, and they're wondering, you know, basically, what kind of scenario are, are have we been have we been a part of now? And they call him the same name that they did in the jail cell, the Blessed King of Longing. Which I think we arrived at the same. Dis- we discussed that translation before. I think we're okay with it now. Is that right? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, it's uh, it's not incorrect. Right. Well, we had some question about it before, but it seems legit now. Anyway, and Griffith immediately re- remembers that moment. We see a little, uh, you know, uh, panel above his head as he's remembering that vision he had in the jail cell of the the disconnected God Hand dimension with all four of them there. And there's this uh, this murmur that goes throughout the crowd as if, uh, is Griffith a part of these guys? Is Griffith related to these guys? You know, a kinsman. And they're wondering, kind of causes confusion. Which upsets guts, which I like about his attitude it, it here. It also upsets Griffiths, actually. If you if you look at him, you know, Gus notices that he's trembling. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know how to read that, and I guess that's why it didn't stick with my brain. Is I didn't quite know how to read his trembling. I think he's just, you know, like he realized he's seen these guys before, and he must be curious and wanting to know more. I don't. know. I think he. I mean, just upset. Generally speaking, he must want to. He must be confused still and want to know more. I mean, yeah. and you also, he's trying to speak to them too, like. Yeah. You yeah. can see he's got his mouth open. I mean, the other side of it is like, you know, he's trying to communicate with his kinsmen, <laughs> you know. I mean, I don't think it's, uh, that far along, but he might actually be trying to yeah, talk to yeah. them. I mean, he's a pretty, when he's got his, you know, mind together, he's a pretty sort of thoughtful and I'd say open-minded fellow. He wasn't too, you know, shocked about Zod. After the mm-hmm. fact. So, yeah, it's it's kind of interesting because you don't know if it's just another one of... You don't know if, you know, they're on the same page and this scares the hell and disturbs Griffith too. Or if, you know, him and Guts are interpreting the events completely differently and Guts is misreading him. As he has in the past. Yeah. Since they uh, rescued yeah. him. Yeah, I think I think that's, that's, uh, that's quite plausible actually. In any case, he definitely wants to voice, you know, something. Whatever it might be. Right. Whether to protest or just to be simply, who knows? Who knows? Well, I'm not sure. Oh. I'm not sure. He oh, kinsman, I'm intrigued. <laughs> really, guys? I like how Guts reacts to it, and he actually does yeah. this a couple times. And you could even say he's motivated by climb, to climb the the tower, or the hand, by this feeling that he has that he doesn't want these people to group Griffith with them. He doesn't want Griffith to turn to a monster. Obviously, you know. Yeah. He's, he puts, draws his knife, which is the only weapon he has left after the fight with Yald. And, you know, says, enough of your crap. Uh, which, you know, the, the line itself, the, the attitude it has, you know, it gets reaction shots from all the major players here. We get Casca's reaction, Guts, uh, Griffith's reaction, Void, Slan, Ubik, uh, Conrad, all of them, you know, the, the god, the god hand themselves being quite amused by this. Uh, Void just silently responds, you know, in typical fashion. What's well, like interesting how is how he's the spokesperson too. All of a sudden, for you know the, yeah. the humans in the room, you know he's sudden, you know he's he's making first contact here, and I feel like yeah. it's interesting <laughs> the way everyone responds. You know, Griffith kind of gives him you know just a look, where Casca looks a little you know you know a little scared and a little shocked, probably because you know 
it seems like Guts is out of control, you know, just yelling at them, basically. And then the God Hand just, you know, yeah, they're amused. I, I just also like how, you know, even even being in this otherworldly scenario, it doesn't phase Guts. Or at least it doesn't phase him enough to stand down, you know. He's, he's still being Guts despite being, despite facing these overwhelming odds. And it's, 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 it's a nice comforting fact. And actually, comforting and reassuring is, is kind of how I'd read Griffith's face later on as, as Guts continues to, you know, rebuke the God Hand for trying to group the God Hand with, with Griffith. Yeah. Saying that he's I mean, meant for them. And it's a strong reaction. I mean, they were, they were all just passively standing there before that and sort of, you know, in shock at this world and everything. And so it's sort of neat that they're, uh, suddenly they sort of have a strong place in the conversation in the form of Guts or that it becomes right. a conversation yeah. through him. Yeah. And I think it's also what amuses the gold hand is that, I mean, people are supposed to be impressed and, you know, almost, you know, you know, crushed by the setting, but he's just, you know, like, he won't, he won't have any of this shit. And, and also beyond that, as if he has a, an actual spot in the negotiating table for what's about to happen. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, as if drawing your knife and against these beings is going to be anything. It's, it's also, it's also petty. And childlike, and I, I, you know, we get a second wave of re- response from the God Hand after Guts finishes his speech. We get Conrad, you know, laughing, Slon laughing, and then I like about Ubik is he, he's actually spinning around, is what the <laughs> the implied motion is. Yeah, it's like, you know, like a top, he's upside down and spinning. Yeah, he's it's such such delight. Yeah, spinning with delight, you know. <laughs> yeah, and Slon actually actually excites her. You can see, you know, talking about. The nature of this ceremony and what's bound to happen to these people is they're bound for sacrifice, and they they, they and they, she expounds on that. I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but that he will willingly do this, and that's the what we soon learn about the nature of this ceremony. And I like how how that places the readers, and also it puts the readers in, in the same spot as, as Griffith at this point, because while we know that he eventually becomes Femto. We're still not at that point of realization in terms of when the switch happens for him. When does he willingly go along with the God Hand? It's not going to be a brainwashed kind of scenario. There's something going to happen to Griffith in the next, in the following pages that's going to change his, I mean, almost his allegiance, you know, in, in terms of well, how things proceed. I think uh, that work has already been done for the most part. I mean, of course, there's a, the dream sequence and all, but I mean, uh, what we've seen his year in jail being tortured and everything since then, it has already, I mean, you know, the needle has moved little by little in that direction, you know, and mm-hmm. this is like the final, you know, stretch. But I think we've already seen that his mental state is, uh, unstable and he has, you know, you know, a grudge against gas and all that kind of stuff. So I think a lot of the work as, as a lot of the groundwork has already been done for that. I also think it's interesting that. I feel like, you know, personally, I don't know about you guys, like, with subsequent rereads and paying closer attention, like, I kind of was in Guts' shoes when I first, you know, experienced the story where I was misreading Griffith's, you know, motives and reactions and intentions when I first saw him during this part. Because obviously he doesn't speak until, you know, we get inside his head a little bit. But, you know, just interpreting things where it's like, assuming, yeah, he's still with them, you know, it's still okay, he's just troubled, blah, blah, blah. But then, you know, I see it, you know, this time, and I see him like, you know, just the scene where he's trying to, you know, respond to them. And you think, you know, he was already, he was kind of ready to go, <laughs> like, already, maybe. I mean, yeah. well, well, I mean, the fact that we talked discussed this last time, but 
the what initiated this whole ceremony to begin with was not wanting guts to bear him up on his shoulder. He 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 was already there to a certain extent, you know. Yeah. In yeah. terms of where his allegiance, I mean, I, I use the word allegiance. I don't necessarily buy that. I don't think he wanted his friends to die horrible deaths necessarily. And I guess we'll we'll get to that. We can hash that out. I mean, and I always figured like he kind of knew something, you know, bad was coming, and that they weren't gonna, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> you'd better just get away. <laughs> it's too late. Yeah, well, we'll we'll get to that. There's certainly a lot of this to discuss once we get to the actual moment of sacrifice. I'm jumping ahead. Anyway, um, as the episode transitions, uh, Slan reiterates the situation that they'll they will all soon become sacrifices, and that Ubik expounds on this how special the Behira that Griffith possesses is. Uh, all apostles, uh, you know, obtain behirits and use behirits to get their true form, he calls their proper form in the Dark Horse translation, which I thought was interesting, you know, that their, their human form, who they were before they became apostles was merely a facade until they became who they were meant to be in, you know, in terms of destiny as these monsters. And I also like how Ubik himself kind of contemplates, uh, the chicken or the egg scenario in terms of what, how the behirit gravitates towards Griffith, you know, was it that he had the qualities to be to to for to become a demon that he became and came in possession of it, or was it that um, that's how it fell into his hands? That that dichotomy between what at what moment did the behirit become his? That whole thing was interesting. Well, from uh, if we take episode eighty three into account. <laughs> yeah, he was always meant for it, of course. Yeah, why well, yeah, it's a bit uh, more complicated that it actually. Seems to be when you hear Ubik's explanation of it because it's more like he doesn't really, I mean, no one really possesses a behirit, you know. Mm. It's more like, mm-hmm. you know, it comes into them when, you know, the time is right, that kind of stuff, so. It possesses you. Yeah, <laughs> well, it's, it's more like that in a way, I guess, you know, so. Yeah. Well, it's, it's an interesting thing, but the way he puts it, in any case, is, uh, is interesting, especially f- from Griffith's point of view at the, at the time, you know. Right. At that point, when Ubik's explaining that in terms of the the people that are around him, he realizes that all of these, you know, people around them are all apostles. And it kind of hits him then, the scenario that they're in, how overwhelming the odds truly are. Yeah. It's something we talked about in Volume 11 as well. How Weald, the battle against Weald, really gives context to the scenario they're currently in. If one apostle can wreak that much havoc on them, what can a hundred or two hundred or three hundred do? You know, it's impossible. It's just an overwhelming yeah. odds. Well, he doesn't know about. He, I mean, he thinks they're all Zod and Wild, but he doesn't know about like the Chicken Apostle. You know, and, <laughs> and those. T- sure. You know, don't worry, it's not that bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what I like here is, uh, you know, Slan picks up where Ubik leaves off, uh, talking about how the the Crimson Behirer allows him to become one of them, one of the God Hand. Yes, it's the egg of the king. There's this look on Griffith's face, and again, it's it's almost unreadable. But I don't know. He looks because of the lighting. You can almost say like horror struck. But I don't know. There's, yeah. there's something about the way he looks. There's a little more than that. I don't know. I think he looks curious. To me, he's like, huh? Yeah. So that's what it is. Hmm. hmm. Sure. Maybe maybe you know he put a lot of weight into that into the meaning of, you know, the egg of the king, and now he knows the true nature of it. Maybe that's what it is, you know. Yeah, I mean, to me, it looks like a, a classic sort of horror shot, but it's like a mm-hmm. realization. Yeah. yeah. So, 
you know, it doesn't necessarily mean he's horrified by the realization, other than it's, you know, it's a very powerful and, you know, somewhat horrifying realization, even if he's curious still. Yeah. Right. I agree. Realization seems like the proper term for it. Okay. And then we get reaction shots as Slon, you know, reiterates that the they will all become valuable sacrifices for this advent. And uh, Pippin, Clarkus, Judo, Casca, all of them. What I like about this is there's a couple moments like this in the Eclipse, uh, this whole scenario, where you get these close-up shots of faces during dialogue, but usually when you have the Falcons, they're shown to be small or vulnerable on the page. You get the, you know lots of shots of them kind of at a wide angle, so you're seeing multiple of them, just to see yeah. how tiny they are in the scope of this whole scenario. And then the following page, it kind of you know bolsters what I just said in terms of the, the Apostles being in the foreground, shown as... Huge and monstrous and all the details as they begin transforming. Yeah. With the Falcons in the background being just tiny and significant. And, and they're also toys. all laughing, you know, it's just, you know. Right. Yeah, you know, what I, also about that is, you know, Casca's horse reacts to this as well. You know, it rears up, you know, de- detecting the, the malicious intent, you know, uh, surrounding them. Or just the weird atmosphere that suddenly has, you know, sprung up in this place. Yeah, well, you know, it's like, you know, what they say, animals get nervous before an earthquake or that yeah. kind of stuff. You know, they can sense a predator or sense danger, you know, and I think that's what's meant to be conveyed in that uh, in that case. Sure, yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it bears note how diverse the monstrous forms are here. Oh, yeah. Uh, and. It's throughout the entire sequence. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna mention it every time they're on the page, because it's such a huge part of this scenario. Is just how crazy all the designs are. How much time he spent, Mira spent on like, not just like you know, those that kind of represent animals or like you know undersea creatures or, or reptiles, but just it's like it just covers the map in terms even of... just key features like though it stands out to me are the two really specific scenes there's one that's literally just like an eyeball with like this disgusting you know pupil that's mm-hmm. you know looks like it's you know broken and this you know a woman's mouth with this very detailed you know tongue coming out of it you know this almost yeah. serpentine like tongue it looks almost like hr geiger kind of work actually yeah 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 and also you know what i like about this is also is it's they're not fully transformed yet. We see this kind of middle transformation. So things become warped. You know, yeah, the arms. Well they they look the like twisted people. A right. lot of them. And, you know, they, on the following page, uh, we get to see their full forms. And it's, you know, Miura uses this uh, charcoal like rough uh, ink or whatever it is to, to describe all of these things visually. And, it just makes it all more, you know, terrifying because you can't see all the fine details. It's just one mass of monsters, basically. Yeah. And the tiny, you know, guys, you know, at the, yeah. at the bottom. It really feels like, you know, the monsters are descending upon them, which is actually what's yeah. going on, I guess. And, and yeah, it, it bears noting all the, the diverse size, scope, and shape of all of them. Some wings, some not, some ground base, some... Tiny, some small, all, it's all over the place. You know? yeah. yeah, I mean, literally some are just like, you know, stick figures that you can see among the others, you know, like, but yeah, it's mm-hmm. just so many different styles and it's just, yeah. It's actually a big, a big part of the success of this, you know, volume and, and the next uh, to me is the fact that Mira managed to set up an atmosphere so chilling and horrifying just by having all these guys in the background, you know, always these, you know, different types of monsters, but all of them are 
pretty much already fighting. And also, if you consider being a first-time reader for this section, this would be answering a question that readers must have had for a while. Well, we've seen a few apostles. You know, what do the rest of them look like? You know, we've seen some really crazy designs. What's the range? What's the scope of an apostle's design? Like, we we get quite a good a good sense of that here. Although, you know, the designs here do seem quite a bit more monstrous than, say, Griffith's lieutenants uh, currently, like, you know, Grunbeld and Locus, all those guys look quite a bit different from here. And, you know, that's a discussion for another day. But I, I thought I'd bring it up here just because we're seeing the most monstrous apostles on the page here for this section. Yeah, and really I don't see, I don't recognize a lot of them actually no. from elsewhere, like, there's some interesting designs here. You know, there's sort of this weird slug that turns into a like an insect head, but it almost it looks like it also has sort of a lion, you know, face down at the bottom. And there's this other one next to that one that looks humongous, and it's just got a bunch of you know, it's got a weird monstrous face for a chest. And you probably don't even know what I'm describing because they all have weird yeah. monstrous faces yeah. <laughs> for a chest. This one has a rather large arm that's actually going around another face next to the slug-like creature. So. I don't know. Maybe. maybe <laughs> oh, that you know one. What I'm yeah, you know, the one with the monster face. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, they're all, they're all horrible, and there are actually a uh, few of them we we get to see later on. You know, like I mean, Borkov and and all the other guys. But uh, yeah, I mean globally. But I think it makes sense that you know, I mean the big you know five guys you know under Griffiths uh, in the current you know story are, are not. How to say, not like these guys, you know, because they are supposed to be higher, you know, mm-hmm. higher level, mm-hmm. not just in mind, but also in, uh, in power. And, and so, I mean, to me, it feels logical that they'd be a bit more refined, you know, in, in terms of not the, just these guys just seem like grotesque, you know, yeah. mutations, yeah. you know, just you know, <laughs> whatever it's like it was thrown against the wall, the evil, and well, they saw what well, came out. Yeah, they're actually, you know, like, how to say the small fry, you know, like the the guys that guts would kill in the woods, you know, uh, during the Black Soulsman period. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, well, like, like, like Griffith's lieutenants are almost like, you know, they're like they're like things out of mythology. You know, they take you know characteristics from things of that nature. Whereas these are more like this is like the monster under your bed or in the closet. Yeah, pretty much. You know, mm-hmm. just just some horrible, unimaginable whore. You know, it's like. Uh, I mean, it reminds me of the woman, for example, that Guts first kills, you know, in Volume 1, you know. Uh, I mean, other than the fact she's a, you know, some hot chick that turns into a monster, her form is, you know, I mean, it just doesn't look like anything. It's like some kind of, you know, abomination. It's just a failed experiment or something like that. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so that's like, to me, that's what the average apostle is all. The guys at Zod commands and, you know, when they don't act fast enough, he just crushes their skull, you know, that this is a, what composes most of the episodes to me. Right. Do you think, I mean, you raised the question about the Griffiths Lieutenants. Do you think that they were here? Do you think they participated? Or was it like Zod, where it was basically beneath them well, to do that? We, we don't see them, so... Uh, sure. It's a good question. They might have been there, and uh, just not partaking into the, you know, just, you know, general debauchery, but... It's hard to know, actually. But they might have been there. I mean, it would make sense for them to be, uh, even if not shown. I mean, we know that Roshin was going there. We actually see the count. We haven't seen him in this volume. Uh, 
Uh, we see the snake baron as well, you know. So yeah, I think it makes sense that they would have been there, even if we didn't see. I mean, I think my interpretation is just that you know, other than them being a twinkle in Mira's eye at the time, that you know, we just don't see them. Yeah. You know, like there's, you know, how you know who knows how many hundreds or even thousands of apostles were there, and we just, you know, I think that's also what's effective about us seeing these guys here who we only see here and you never see them again because. Why should we ever see them again? They're just sort of faces in the crowd. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that was their purpose. We saw them here. They're not really significant otherwise. And, you know, there were significant apostles there we didn't see. Yeah. Well, it's just like you said, there's so many that pretty much, you know, they might have been in the mass, in the group or not. You know, it doesn't really matter. The point is most of them were supposed to be there. And, you know, maybe if, if Locus didn't, you know, make the trip, then so be it. It's not... Uh, and as I mentioned before, we get basically the the full weight of the scenario is now felt as Salon reveals that he will willingly sacrifice them. It will not be a, we're going to murder you yeah. uh, for, for no reason. It will be Griffith that sacrifices you, which changes, you know, everyone's perspective on the whole thing a little bit. And Griffith uh, actually guts does look surprised at this. I mean, when he hears yeah. it, you see his face, he actually looks surprised at what she's saying. Yeah, and, and, you know, Guts gives him a look as well. He turns towards Griffith at that moment. Uh, and they all look towards, well, you yeah. can't tell where they're looking, but it all gives them a, a moment of pause. And Guts rejects it, but mid-sentence, Void breaks in with all lies within the current of causality. It's massive. It's, I mean, I've always seen this as a very imposing panel. Uh, very bold. I mean, the, the text bubble is massive. Yeah, and it, and uh, it is. I mean, even the, you know, the fact the sun is above his head, like a sort of, dark, hollow, you know. I think mm-hmm. it's uh, it's all very it's supposed to be massive, you know. That's the feeling I get, like it's massive and you see the panel of the, you know, Falcons, you know, on the left, they're like being crushed by his weight. Yeah. Uh, and then he says basically that all of their lives were spun into this moment. Uh, and now uh, he initiates the Invocation of Doom is how Dark Horse translates it. But it's the ceremony uh, the sacrificial ceremony that we know of. Yeah, I'm not sure that's a very good translation of it either, actually. It's probably not, but it's the one I have at hand. Yeah. Uh, Conrad actually does the, the legwork in terms of raising what he calls the altar, which is, of course, the giant hand, mm. one finger per god hand member. Uh, and what I like about it is that, you know, everything's being manipulated uh, physically, so that we see, you know, the trembling of the faces before it happens, and the horses, you know, lose their footing. The mouths of the, the ground begin opening and wailing. They're screaming as they're basically being reformed by Conrad. Yeah. You know, making this giant mountain. And they're screaming the whole way up. And of course, you know, I mean, to me, someone who's read the whole series, you know, seeing all these faces lined up like that, you know, it's, it's hard to not think about what happens in volume 20 and 21, you know, mirroring these events. Yeah. That's how I think of it as well. This whole section here, uh, I wanted to take a pause real quick to, to focus on uh, one of the, the characteristics of action in this particular part of the series is interesting. In terms of the intensity, the levels of intensity, and then Miura will show like a fragment of time, like a frozen moment of time to capitalize on that intensity. Like there's this all this movement, all this action happening, and then they have this panel of Griffith and Guts, you know, Griffith reaching out to grab Guts, and then there's this frozen moment of time well, there's no blurred lines or anything. There's just a frozen instance to capitalize on that action. As he's holding him over this just chasm of darkness, yeah. you know. 
This happens multiple yeah. times throughout this whole volume and volume 13 as well. We'll have lots of moments of intensity and then this, this frozen moment of time to just really underline how otherworldly and crazy things get here. Uh, Griffith reaches out to grab Guts, you know, and then his arm just, you know, begins ripping or tearing from the weight of it. Of course, his body is frail, his muscles are gone, tendons are gone. He can't hold on. So it looks to me, and I've always interpreted it as Guts letting go vil- willingly. Yeah, right? of course. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Okay. I actually, Which, I actually find it funny that one of the faces is biting Griffey's hand, you know, so that Yeah, it looks like it's like oh, mauling. Yeah. <laughs> like, is it holding on to help him or, you know, but yeah, it's going around his arm up at the top. <laughs> I was just looking at that. Yeah. And you can, you know, I've always, I always think about this moment as well, because it, it does give us a little bit of insight into Griffith's mentality at this point. You know, he was, Put into a moment of despair when Grip, when Guts reached him before the ceremony was initiated. You know, that's what caused him that, that moment of terror for Griffith to be pitied by Guts was what initiated this whole thing. But here he's reaching out to save his friend. And the look in Griffith's eyes at that moment is he doesn't want his friend to fall to his death. Yeah. He's, you know, look at the, the intensity in his eyes, you know, it really gives us a sense of he still cares a lot about guts. Yeah. It's not like he's given up on him as a friend or anything. Far from it, you know. Well, which uh, uh which page are you uh talking about? The one I'm where he's right before right before he drops him. Right before guts lets go rather. Sorry. Cuz I mean that could also be like the pain from his arm like yeah, sort of mm. bursting. I mean, but he has that intense look in his eye on the previous page too when yeah. it's like re- when they're reaching for each other. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I mean, it's small and it's slight. Yeah. But right after Gut, as Guts is falling, you can still read his expression on Griffith's face as he's sitting there holding on to the they're, remains. They're on the same page. You're like you can tell, they're still. They're. Wor- I mean, this is sort of the last time they're working together. Yeah, yeah. That's a good point. What's also worthy of note here is that the hand itself is still forming. You know, Griffith's being raised up still. You know, that the hand itself is still formed because obviously Griffith can't you know pick himself up and climb because he ends up in the palm of the hand. So he doesn't have to climb the rest of the way. Yeah. Uh, Guts immediately, you know, uses his knife to brace himself on the thing. I, I like the action here. He slices through all the faces and they're <laughs> screaming, you know, being sliced up like that. I just like how Mira gives all of them just a, a little bit of personality as if they're not just scenery. They actually are human souls or faces, you know, being they incorporated. Are, yeah, there's into the some. Scenery. Yeah. There's some sort of living being, or I mean, some undead being, maybe, but I just, yeah, I like the initial one where he's like stabbing it through the other eye and you just see yeah. the eye wide, the other one wide open and intense. Right, yeah. And you know, they're bleeding and bleeding all over Gut's face and he's, you know, squinting as a result of the blood. And then again, like I said before, this moments of intensity followed by, you know, frozen moments in time. We get this tall, you know, full, full page shot of the hand having formed. You know, the light on Guts as he's, you know, finally, you know, stopped with his knife. I also like the, a, slow climb. the way the Go. lighting works in all of these shots. I mean, like you said, those frozen moments, you know, from the when, you know, Griffith and Guts are reaching for each other to when he's holding him. And, you know, there's just darkness below Guts. It's all very, you know, sort of like metaphorical, I mean. And then when mm-hmm. they let go, it's all contrasted behind white. And, yeah, like you said, like the darkness up now on the top of the hand and the light shining on Guts. Totally. And then following uh, Guts, you know, he hasn't begun his climb yet, but you can, you get the impression that's where he's headed. That's the goal of his climb. Uh, we get, you know, the most informative establishing shot of this whole section. We get this almost two page shot of the hand, you know, rising up like that from the sea of apostles surrounding, you know, the mountainous faces on the ground. 
I also like how the lighting works here, where uh, you can see it's all sourced from the eclipse. Uh, and a little bit of fog happening on the ground, just kind of otherworldly. But the idea being you can't see the horizon. It's just darkness. It's just complete blackness except for the light coming from the eclipse itself. Yeah. I didn't mention this last episode, but I, th- I felt we should have probably in terms of what's happening. You know, a solar eclipse is a very uh, transient moment uh, in terms of co- cosmology or astrology. It just happens quickly. It doesn't happen. It doesn't freeze like this. So what I wanted to note was the ceremony itself basically takes that moment in time and freezes it in another dimension. You know, it's using the power of the eclipse in another dimension because it's, it would eventually fade and pass in seconds. And of course, this is longer than seconds. Yeah. That being said, uh, I'm not sure, I'm not sure it lasts just seconds, you know, and, uh, but yeah, this, this one lasts, you know, I mean, it's stuck like that for, for quite a while, but. It's not, you know... For the purposes of the, of the ceremony, basically, and until the ceremony is over. Yeah, yeah, pretty much, yeah. But uh having witnessed one before, I don't think it's just over in seconds, you know. It's like it's more like minutes. Okay. Either but way, it's what, longer I than... I mean, yeah. what's yeah. interesting is that whatever the eclipse was in the world when it actually happened, when it happened, you know, before everything changed and transformed, I feel yeah. like this is just like a... A false image of that, you know? It's like, I mean, you know, you also can't break through a real eclipse, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. and shatter it sure. like glass, well, you know? This is, in and, a way, uh, it's sort of... I mean, uh, we don't know exactly... Yeah, the sort of how unnatural and false this is, kind of. I don't know if false is the right word, but it could be, actually. Yeah. I, th- I think mostly the ceremony piggybacks on a, on an astronomical event, you know? But uh, I yeah. don't even think... I mean, we don't know exactly who the world walks in, uh, in Berserk, but I, I don't think like every solar eclipse is going to lead to a ceremony like that or anything yeah. like that. It's a, a specific kind of ceremony that uses that event, you know, as a way to, I don't know, maybe draw power from it or something like that. And or it could just be, it's like in our world, it's a, or in the real world in Berserk, it's just, it's just the window into this, this world. Yeah. You know, and in this yeah. world it stays, you know, the eclipse stays like that, you know, but obviously it only passes. In well, the, world. the thing is, I'm not even sure, like, this is a place that exists, you know, permanently, as opposed to something that's created, you know, like a, a sort in of the time. Yeah, in that moment in time, you know, it can exist at a time specifically, and, yeah. like, the gold hand can rise from the death of the astral world, and, you know, the people from the corporate world are drawn into that as well, so... Well, case, yeah, and I mean, I definitely, I, I believe that too. I do feel like these are all temporary. Well, I mean, not necessarily temporary, but they're tapped into temporarily. I mean, it's, we get the same view from the outside that we get in volume three of, you know, what looks like some yeah. sort of extreme yeah. weather, you know, event, you know, completely unnatural. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, some kind of supernatural tornado, yeah. Yeah. I also just wanted to weigh in, and I agree. I've always thought of this particular setting, the, the faces of death. Would be a, a scenario or an, a, a, a geography that was created specifically for this event. Not necessarily that this is where all eclipses happen. I mean, it could be, but I, I've always thought this is very specific. I don't know. Yeah, that's one thing is that, I mean, technically, we don't even know if, like, you know, the previous eclipse, you know, I mean, the previous, you know, uh, you know, what's the occultation ceremony or eclipse ceremony occurred in the exact same place, or it was similar mm-hmm. but different, or completely different. We don't know any of that, so it's hard to generalize from just this one occurrence. Well, what's interesting yeah. is how these ceremonies are so... I mean, what a show. I mean, just they have 
these different sort of venues and i mean i mean it's really it's like i mean it's it sounds funny to describe it this way but this the staging with the hand you know for the god hands it's like uh, i mean it's almost like a rock show if this wasn't a you know a, a serious supernatural event taking place <laughs> yeah i don't i don't i think that's actually a i mean i actually like that analogy because i'm going to use that later on as well in terms of what's shown, uh, actually, it's a good transition into what's happening next, so I'll go ahead and jump into that. Um, we see the full hand itself, and we see that all the god hand members occupy a single finger, with Conrad on the pinky, uh, Ubik on the uh, ring finger, slam middle. The index finger is missing someone, and Void is a thumb. You know, I've seen people speculate about you know the importance of that, with Void being the thumb, you know, being the, the most important in terms of progress or whatever, and in terms of your uh, anatomy, and Griffith being the index, I don't necessarily read too much into that, but you you maybe could read a little bit into the positioning of them with missing the index finger, but I don't think there's much to be gained or drawn from that reading, but it seems just merely scenery to me. He's the anyway. most highly evolved. Yeah, that's what it is. Well, I was just saying is, you know, as far as the sum goes, because it's, you know, what allows, you know, the hand to be prehensile, I guess there mm-hmm. might be meaning from that, you know, but uh, from the fact it's like, you know, what makes it actionable or something like that. But yeah, other than that, I, I'm not sure there's really, like, there's no deep meaning to be derived from the position of the fingers. It's Right. Do you think it's kind of ironic that, I mean, he's standing on a five-fingered hand and he himself has six fingers? <laughs> well, you know... I thought about that, yeah. You know, Conrad has only four fingers, so yeah, it's this kind of stuff is... I I don't think it really yeah I don't think there's really any specifically deep thing you know other than the fact it's a hand and I don't like think so either I just think it's kind of you know it's fun to note yeah yeah like uh, um now that Griffith is in the center you know they can begin their one-on-one tête-à-tête discussion with him about you know his decision his his mentality and who he is. And that's the purpose of this. And Void asks Griffith, you know, are you, are even you afraid of someone, of pe- of beings such as us? Um, Ubik says that before we enter the future, we'll peer into your mind for, to return to the past. And he actually describes this phenomenon. He says, what will follow is not an illusion, but it's the reality within your conscious realm manifested in this dimension. Which I, I'm, I thought that was interesting. I'm actually not sure it's, it's true, you know, like, I'm not sure Ubik is being very reliable. In this, you know, mm. setting. <sighs> well, I, I use that as a basis later on to describe some of the visuals that are conjured up. Yeah. For example, uh, when Void points to the castle in the sky, and later when he has, you know, the image of Femto behind him. You know, Griffith earlier the on the podcast had referenced a rock show in terms of the staging, as giant hand rising up. I've always kind of thought that some of these images, at least, were manifested up there on the top. Not merely as for the readers, but also for the spectators that were there, or the spectator, particularly Griffith, that was able to see some of these images. You know. Well, you know, yeah. I mean, I think uh, it's hard to describe. Maybe it just evokes it in his mind, or maybe it's materialized. But in any case, I think the visual analogy is present for Griffith. I mean, maybe not for the people. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's really present for the guys on the ground, but. Yeah, it, well, we know for a fact it's not because Carcass actually has a small panel where he says, "What's happening up there?" You know, he can't see. Well, they can't see. I'm imagining. Yeah, this, the details. Yeah, the, the thing is, in, in any case, it's too. I mean, my point is that, you know, uh, I'm I'm not sure it's something that it's not like it's TV screen or some holographic projector, but 
in any case, mm-hmm. Griffiths can, can see it, you know, whether it's in his, you know, mind's eye or... Yeah, it's know, being projected mm-hmm. in... But, I mean, is it in his mind or is, you know, it being projected into his mind, you know? That's the question yeah. I had, but, yeah. And, and you know, I, does it really matter? I mean, in the end, no. the result is the same. Well, uh, it, it really only matters in terms of measuring the God Hand's ability. You know, we've kind of chronicled what they're capable of. And they're basically saying, within this particular plane... You know, this is being manifest. And, and so the question is, is it physically present or is it merely a mental image? I mean, and I, I guess you're right. It's nitpicking, but. Well, well I think, I mean, the, to me, the question is the legitimacy that this is, you know, this is reality. This is your reality. Well, I'm going to tell you how you really feel, you know, right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a very manipulative sort of, uh, yeah. sort of a yeah. play, you know, you're telling someone, I'm going to show you the truth, you know, and you, you better follow it kind of a thing is the implication. <laughs> I think, you know, like, like we've said just before, and I, we have actually talk, talked about this scene, this scene, you know, in the past, even in past podcasts, I think. But, you know, we've established that Griffiths was in a very confused state of mind at this point. That, you know, uh, having, you know, God's pity him and everything like Cascan and everything, it was, you know, truly desperate to him. But at the same time, uh, he cared about his friends and he wasn't exactly sure about what was going on. So I, I think this scene is really crucial in, to say it's like he's being you know uh, scammed into sacrificing in a way you know he's being you know manipulated into doing it so or at least they are waiting in that you know in the option of that uh, in the favor of that option I, I agree there's there's definitely manipulation happening and I don't think there's any way around that really uh, given how things are shown but I, I want to get to yeah. that page by page because there's two or three instances of it happening. But what I like about the transition here, we have already described how Ubik is doing what he's doing by delving into Griffith's mind like this. Yeah. But we actually, the visual transition is nice. I like how Ubik's, I guess we can call them lenses. Yeah. Just his eyes, his eye holes, let's call them, and become white. And then we get kind of perspective from him, these two white circles. Yeah. Uh, as the childlike Griffith is running. And then even that transitions into two arches. Yeah. Roughly the same shape as yeah. the circles from the previous page. I thought that was a really cool yeah. visual element. It, it is. It's, uh, yeah, it, it's really cool. I, I love these, I love these panels. I love even all that yeah. sequence. It's really fucking cool. I actually can't wait to see more of you big, you know, little tricks in the future. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, honestly, other than Void, Ubik's probably my favorite Godhand member, just in terms of his potential. And, and again, I, I draw a lot of meaning in terms of how he's able to accomplish this particular, you know, mind meld, mind dive kind of yeah. thing. I, I wondered if it was specific to him, you know, in terms of how he's yeah. able to do this or not. Other yeah, than Void, I see, he's uh, the most sort of mysterious and interesting. You know, the uh, you know, Conrad and Slan, they seem kind of simple by comparison. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, and I think yeah, it's it's probably specific to him. You know, they seem to have all their own specialties, you know, and uh mm-hmm. I think yeah it's specific to him. And it's actually reinforced by what we see of his little ward, you know, when uh Fantasia comes to be, you know, we see his with all these crazy <laughs> characters, you know, based on uh on Bosch's uh, painting. And um yeah, I actually I'm very curious to see, you know, Guts encounter him, you know, one on one. It would be quite interesting. While we're discussing individual God Hand abilities, I'd never actually thought about it be- before, but Conrad specifically raises the altar yeah, in a way that sort of resembles, you know, the shape of his face rising from the mound of rat in Volume 17, yep. you know, able to manipulate giant shapes, uh, an amalgamation of different things into one shape like that. It's somewhat similar. Yeah. It seems to be risen from, you know, souls Death. or, you know, yeah. some sort of, you know, beings. 
yeah, in the yeah. ground, and presumably... I've always vortex. thought of them as dead souls, or the departed, basically. Yeah, I think they might be from the vortex, very simply. You know? Yeah. 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 Anyway, um, getting on with the sequence here, we see Griffith as a child running through, and this whole sequence takes, takes place with him uh, and his childlike persona. And I wondered about this during this reread, you know, why is a child? And I thought it basically, it spoke to uh, the purity of his dream when he was a child, which is what drove him forward. <laughs> It's kind of what drove him, even as an adult, was this that the moment that this dream latched onto him, yeah. uh, that drove him, was as a child. And that was the most, before life became complicated, before doubt set in. This was the purity, the purest part of his dream. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's because of that. And also, you know, in a way, it uh, symbolizes the fact he's vulnerable in this state, you know. Yeah. He seems, mm, yeah. he's like a child to them, you know, not only, you know, because of his physical state, but also his mind, you know, his state of mind. He's simple, you know, and they seem to be, again, it's a, something that reinforces the fact they're manipulating him into doing something they want him to. It's also patronizing, too, at the same time. I mean, everything you said is, yeah, absolutely true, but it's also, like you said, it's like he's a child to them, you know, and yeah. they should yeah. trust him. He doesn't really, you know know what he's doing yeah they actually you know i mean la- later on in that little scene we see they're almost yelling at him you know it's like you know uh-huh you thought you know you didn't think about it yeah you should do it like that you should have done if you were, didn't want to do it you shouldn't have come here it's like very you know they're almost o- ordering him to do things yeah so he's running through the city but it, he, he describes how it's empty and he's wondering where everyone has gone uh we see silhouettes of some people and I actually wondered about you know if this is a whole mental construct they're creating, why even have these silhouettes of adults here? I wonder if there was any symbolism in terms of, you know, basically no one being on Griffith's level as a human or no one that could speak to him other than when the God Hand basically insert them here. Or if it was merely to make him look isolated or to make him be isolated for this scenario. Yeah, I think it might be. I think there's multiple levels of interpretation for that. And the fact is... The only one in the light and the others are in the shadows. The fact they're mm-hmm. all immobile and he's, you know, running. So he's the only one getting on and moving forward, you know. And of course for atmosphere, so. Right. It's the, the atmosphere part probably is the bigger reason factor there. You're probably right about that. But he actually encounters a, an old woman at a spinning wheel and uh, she directs him. He asks where the castle is and she directs him and. I want to take a moment here and point out the obvious, which is that uh, weavers or spinners like this in, in classical, classical mythology are, are generally associated with those that control destiny. Yeah. And Greek mythology in particular, there's uh, it originated in Greek mythology. There's three sisters who control human destiny. Uh, one measures, one weaves, and one cuts the thread of human destiny. Shakespeare borrowed that in Macbeth for his three witches that have control over destiny as well. Always described as spinning a wheel, spinning yarn or thread. And, uh, Griffith basically follows her advice and goes into the, and finds himself soon in a dark place. Uh, and he then quickly realizes that he's stepping on corpses as, you know, maggots are on top of the corpses as well. There's this two page spread of just mounds and mounds of bodies, uh, against him, you know, white, child and light. And he screams and, he even acts childlike, and even given the serious near here seriousness here, Mir is drawing him almost a little comically. Yeah. In terms of his facial expressions, he's t- turning and trying to run in a different direction, uh, and he like, and Griffith falls and becomes covered in blood. And this imagery here, I absolutely love, particularly 
Because there's some symbolism there as well. You know, his hands are bloodied by this. His face is bloodied. He's covered in blood as a result of this. Yeah, he has been sullied by, you know, the corpses. Exactly. And so at this point, you know, I mean, he's he is trying to get off of this path. Uh, or at least he doesn't like where he's come to, you know, from a larger picture. And at this point, the woman inserts herself and asks him, you know, why are you making so much noise? This is where you wanted to be. And Griffith's, you know, protesting that, you know, I can't believe this is the place that you directed me to, basically. Uh, and the question then becomes that how else were you supposed to have reached the the, the castle? I feel weird going line by line over this, as I always do. But I think it's important here because the woman is basically, she is inserting herself when he begins to express doubt. Yeah. And, and this happens two or three times throughout the scenario where maybe he would have made another choice, but she keeps directing him towards that it, path. It's also, reasoning with it's him, also interesting you know? to see that she gives him information that is perhaps not, uh, you know, exactly accurate. Like, for example, she says, you know, this is the only road to that castle. There aren't any others. Right. So, you know, it's, she establishes things that, you know, become facts in his mind that that's the only way he can do things. The only way is to go on, is to pile on more. So it's, uh, it's an, you know, almost an unreliable narrator, you know. So, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, the other way to I interpret like... it is that she is dispelling his childlike notions about how he was going to get to the castle. Yeah, that's you know, true. without this, you know, where she taking taken literally, where she says, you know, you know, am I, you know, did I, am I lying to you, or you know, this is this is really the only way, you know, yeah. you're lying to yourself. Yeah, yeah. You think otherwise, right? And then we see the child from uh, the Casca's flashback, uh, which we knew this child's death had a big impact on Griffith because he was. Basically, uh, uh, you know, his death was a result of Griffith's dream, and it was one of the times, or at least one of the times that were revealed, that had a, a huge impact on Griffith's, the the weight of the path that he was on. Yeah, he felt guilty for so, his death. Right. It's it's a weak point for him. It's a vulnerable point uh, in terms of his relationship to his dream and what it costs to, to get there. And also, uh, you know, the those that fell under his command are also behind him, kind of these zombie soldiers. And I really like the atmosphere here and the imagery, the the waving of the tattered falcon flag. It just looks gorgeous like this. It's just so foreboding and creepy that they're saying, you know, we want to see the kind of kingdom that you would make, uh, despite the fact that they're all dead. And these are the these are his supporters here in this scenario, yeah. these zombies. Yeah, there he goes. And I like how this is when they're chanting, you take us with you, (laughs) you know, basically. And he screams to them that he can't take them with you because they're dead. And, uh, you know, there's almost a silence here. There's like a, it's frozen for a moment. You know, they, they, they stop talking to him as well. And again, the woman inserts herself to, uh, direct him to the path and explain to them that their deaths are what got you this far. And there's no sense in turning back now. And it's throughout this, as she reveals that, you know, if you give up now, then you will become one of them. And she, uh, the God Hand, rather, reveal his current form, and it startles him, you know. Is his current form or just a horribly mangled form? It's kind of impossible to say. But either way, you know, he himself, he will die as a result of his this. His body looks like it's taken on the same sort of zombie-like, you know, appearance, his right. flesh. She asks him this question. She says, well, why couldn't you have been satisfied just gazing up? And, and Griffith doesn't know how to answer it, you know. And, you know, I wondered if this was a point where, you know, the desire itself was something that was implanted to him or he was bred to have that, that you know, unwavering vision to, to seize that castle. 
Well, but I mean, either way, it's an it's an it's a part of who he is. Yeah, and, and, and I think we know we know the answer. I mean, it's in, it's uh, pretty much stated in episode eighty three. But even yeah. without that, you know, I mean, we know that his life has been shaped to come to that point, and I think it's mm-hmm. uh, it's pretty much a given that he was meant to be. So the so fact he himself doesn't know why he felt compelled to live that life, I think it's also an indication that even at you know. On that, you know, level, he was, you know, manipulated to do it. Sure. And, I mean, the manipulation almost becomes a joke here because Conrad and Ubik are shown to be hiding behind an old woman mask here. It's, it's even drawn Well, comically. yeah, they're like two children standing on each other's shoulders, you know, wearing a costume. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, you can also, I mean, in the, the text changes so that it's like their voices, you know, their true voices are breaking through as they urge him on. <laughs> The other thing I think is interesting is right before that moment is how this is almost like how we form arguments and debates on the board where they, it's like, hey, remember this panel with Guts? This is pretty significant. And they like, they call, they bring Guts into it. They bring his own yeah. buddy who was just fighting on his behalf earlier against this to come and chime in like, yeah, I definitely think you should do this. I fully endorse it. You know, you're a good, you're, yeah, you're a good person. You believe it, right? This is the only path to your dream. <laughs> I'm guts, and I approve. This yeah, sacrifice. I approve this message. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, you're right. It is utterly out of context, and it, but it also similar to the boy. You know, it's it's a weak point for for Griffith, and again, in terms of the chasing of his dream, just like the child was. You know, he he looks to guts for uh, approval or at least reassurance in terms of his dream. And you know, there's one thing that's interesting is the rationale behind. You know, when he says, "What good is regretting it now? What can I say now?" After all I've yeah. already done, you know, if I quit now, it's all wasted. And that's a very, actually, it's a very typical scam, you know. Uh, it's the same thing with uh, MMORPGs or, you know, all kind of betting, you know, <laughs> schemes where you've already invested so much, you don't want to it's quit. It's the so, sunk cost. <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly, yeah. exactly. It's a sunk cost, you know, uh, scheme. And that's, that's exactly it. And, you know, I find it interesting that it's what he falls for because it's one of the most... You know, it's a, one of the most compelling things and a lot of people fall for it. And so in this case, that, you know, Mira sought to use that kind of scheme, you know, or, or that he had, you know, you can Conrad use that kind of thing to convince Griffiths. I, I find it, you know, very, very clever, you know, actually. Uh, we didn't mention it before. I think we, I think I just may have just missed it, but, uh, he's, when it, during, when Griffith is, is surprised by the mounds of corpses, she says that, there will be, you'll be even more corpses to get there, you know. Yeah. That he's not quite even there yet. You'll need more corpses to pile up. And it's during this sequence that Azia was talking about when Griffith is accepting this, basically this, right, as you said, the sunk cost means for proceeding, that he actually begins carrying the boy, uh, the dead boy, up to the, the mountain of corpses. And, and we don't see it, but the implication is that he's adding the corpse to the pile. Yeah. To, to he's taking the boy climb, up climb there. And I mean, yeah. that's a, yeah. that's an incredible symbol just because this boy, symbolized the opposite before you know it was his questioning it was his thing you know like i mean he did use it to go forward and he was going to fight you know for them and everything so he kind of used it as a rationale before in the same vein but at the same time it's like now he's just he's going he's transcending that he's putting he's going to take the boy up there himself and step on his body to get to the next you know step it's no longer about honoring yeah right you know then we no, I was just saying, I like how it cuts back to the, you know, real, real time, uh, you know, 
where you see Griffith's oh, yes. you know, reflection in Ubik's eyes. I, I love, I also love that. I think, you know, just like it's perfect how it starts, you know, the sequence, it's also perfect the way it ends, you know, with his, you know, how to say, seeing himself reflected in his eyes, you know, and uh, Ubik saying that that is him. Yeah, the, the circular nature of it, for sure. But, I mean, is that him, or is that merely emphasizing a dark part of what drives Griffith? You know? Yeah. Of course, it's a manipulation. Well, there's not. I, I think it's present. I think it was, yeah, this part of him, you know, is in there somewhere, was in there somewhere, but did they twist, you know, his mind to make him, you know, think that was all there was to it? Yeah, I think it's pretty clear. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, to me, it's, it's pretty clear that Ubik played a big role here uh, in, uh, how to say, twisting his mind so that he yeah. would be more, more willing to sacrifice. Definitely. And just the fact that Griffith, mm-hmm. you know, questions it, you know, and calls it an illusion. You know, he's thinking this, and then Ubik immediately corrects him and goes like, oh, no, th- that was no illusion, <laughs> you know. It's like, that was the reality yeah. in your mind, you know, and everything. But even though we know we... It is an, it has to be an illusion to a degree just because we literally see him wearing the mask and, you know, grinning, you know, under there. You know, there's even a little sound effect for it, you know, right, while, yeah. while Conrad is playing the lower body. So, I mean, there's something, you know, there's, they make a, they make a point. I think it's a valid, you know, point they're making to him about his life and what it represents and, you know, what direction was he going in anyway and, you know, is he going to go all the way with this? But at the same time, you know, they're representing it as, you know, this is sort of the truth in your soul, and that may not be the case. Yeah, and I, I think it's a tribute to Griffiths that they had to do so much, you know, including the fact he was tortured a year in advance, and he was rescued by his former friends, including the one, you know, for which he had some grudge, and then there was, you know, the, the episode with Wild where he was humiliated before everyone. You know, there's all these things together, you know, everything's piled on, and they still have to convince him in the end. To sacrifice. So I, I think in a way it's a tribute to his, you know, strength of character, you know, that, you know, so much was needed to make him, you know, do the deed. Yeah, for sure. He had to bring him to a breaking point, as we've reiterated multiple times. As the scene moves forward, you see the ripple effect of the path that Griffith brought and all the lives that were shattered and killed as a result of him chasing his dream. You even see something very, you know, uh, close to the heart and not just soldiers on the battlefield, but also civilians. You know, we see that what looks, I'm assuming a mother, you know, holding her child and the remains of a burned down building and ch- children on the horizon. He's showing the full, the full scope of what that could have resulted in. And of course, even that is a manipulation because the world was already at war, uh, as a result yeah. of this and they were merely mercenaries. But I mean, the, the, the impact is clear, you know, yeah. it makes sense regardless. They're talking about the Falcons as, uh, as the, the feathers of each one, of the Falcons one by one, you know. You know. They're setting up. Yeah. Go I, ahead. I'm, I'm, in, I'm in kind of stumbling anyway. No, I was just saying, I actually like that, you know, they reference, uh, them as being his wings, you know, part of wing. And that's actually the same wording that is used in, uh, episode, I think it's, uh, 336, you know. Yep. And, uh, and yeah, I, I thought that was interesting. So to point out because it's been reused recently to talk about Rickert. So, yeah. Yeah, that also struck me when I was reading this part. The falcons and the talons. Yeah. Or the feathers and the falcons. What, what the hell? Yeah, the, feathers and yeah, talons. Yeah, the beak and talons were are the apostles and uh, 
those guys mm-hmm. were the, the wings, you know, part of wings, uh, right. what allowed him to soar in the sky. Um, we are seeing kind of these, this text overlaid with the Falcons, but we get a little bit of text from Carcass saying, what's going on up there? So it's not as if this is being amplified. Or, or at least that's, that's how I read that. That's how I take that, is that they can't actually hear what's happening, but they know there's something happening up there on the palm of the hand where Griffith and Guts are. Is that also you guys reading? Well, I think they might actually be hearing the speech, but they don't really know what's going on, you know, like they are being described in, in, you know, in that way. I, I'm not sure they know. I, I think it's possible that, uh, you know, they can hear the speech, but they don't know exactly what it refers to or what's mm. going on. Okay. But they're setting up what, uh, Void calls the, the cruel grace of the God born of man in terms of, Griffith having a choice here, you know, that a path of destiny was laid for him in terms of what will happen in the future, but he can also choose to go against that. And he's describing how, you know, even now, even even if it was all for nothing, they would still accept you and you would have to rest in the ruins of your dream. And, you know, Void calls that the cruel grace of the God born of man. It's worth noting that this this point, Void is refer, referred to a God being three times at this point. Yeah. We didn't mention it before because I forgot, but... It's the first reference to God that I can recall, at least since the Golden Age. It may have been referenced in Volume 3, but I don't think it was. I think this is the first of the few instances we see of there being a God in the Berserk world. Well, yeah, where, well, yeah. where you see yeah. an authoritative godlike being sort of acknowledging, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. you know, or you are a God. Like, you know, exists. they discussed gods, you know, I mean, Griffith and Guts, you mm-hmm. know, had this discussion after they ran into Zod, you know, gods and monsters, and if there's a difference... Which obviously is a debate that uh, still runs through the series. What I just find interesting about it is how the choice, you know, they do, they technically give him a choice, but they're basically shouting at him what to do, and the alternative is, or, you know, you can ruin your life, you know, <laughs> and, you know, yeah. basically live, yeah, live in the ruins of your dream, which is, you know, sort of just the perfect, like, painful way to put it to Griffith. Mm-hmm. And, um,. One of my favorite sections here of the series, uh, in terms of, you know, Void reaching out his massive arm, pointing to the castle in the sky. If, if that is more dazzling in your eyes than anything, then continue piling it up using the same verbiage as before in the, in the sequence. Enchant the words I sacrifice. Uh, we see an image of Femto behind him, a silhouette of what Femto would be. You know, I mean, again, I talked about it before, but I wondered about if this is present or if this is merely image, imagery for the readers. I can kind of see that a kind of shadowy shape happening behind Void like that. I don't, I don't, I don't think it was necessarily just for the readers. I think Griffith might have gotten a vision of that. I don't uh, know. I think splitting hairs. To me, uh, that specific panel is just for the readers, you know. Okay. I mean, yeah, I think so, but, you know. I mean, I don't know. Even the uh, way also, it's sort of done, I mean, it's like this sort of, uh, it's, it's not a solid shape. It's not actually like a solid image. Of yeah, him, yeah. I feel like that's something that you know Griffith could be glimpsing in his mind's eye. Yeah, you know. yeah. that's cool. Yeah, you're right because he had not formed the idea of Femto when he's in his head or anything like that. Yeah, you know. Anyway, uh, what I also like about this page, of course, is you can see inside Void's cloak, and you see this kind of like shimmering pattern within the cloak, as if there's some kind of <laughs> there's light just an- source or there's like that. there's another world in there. Yeah. <laughs> It's super bizarre, and, and I think it's one of the first times you see that he has six fingers. Maybe, maybe you saw it in Volume 3. I'm sure we saw it in Volume 3. Never mind. Either way, I'm interrupting the sequence here. 
Uh, and we already discussed Void's speech here about if it be reason that destiny transcend human intellect. And discussion of, you know, using ev the evil power to uh, grab hold of destiny. We already discussed all that in the earlier bits. But if we come right to it, and Guts has reached the precipice of the hand, and he's right on par with Griffith. What I like here also is the timing of the everything. Of course. You know? It, Gut, yeah. Had Guts arrived five minutes earlier, 30 seconds earlier, would anything have changed? Would he have been able to interrupt things, or was it merely meant to work out like that? I mean, I think we all know the answer to that, but I just find it fascinating that even that, even that moment plays out perfectly. Yeah, of course. That Griffith has already reached the point of decision at this point. No, there's no going back. And seeing Guts at the time was a perfect, you know, final straw, you know. Yeah. And it also, it's nice that Guts, and it's, it's nice, that's certainly not the word I would choose to use. It's appropriate that Guts was there at the very end, since he is referenced in this in his final words, yeah. that it was Guts among everyone yeah. that caused him to forget his dream. And, and that's why I see... And there's this gorgeous... No, I was just saying, and that's why I think it's uh, doubly, you know, interesting that he arrives right at that moment. Because, you know... Mm -hmm. Without that, who knows what Griffiths would have, you know. He might have been even more hesitant at the time, you know. I mean, mm -hmm. it just it makes it more organic, you know. I mean, it simplifies his choice. He's basically, he is rejecting Guts, you know, standing right there before him and choosing, you know, this life instead. Yeah. yeah. It makes yeah. it less abstract. And I also like, I mean, it's very, it's a very simple effect, but it's very powerful to me. Just the white paneling here, you know, their, their, their whole volume is black and dark and just, you know, so much detail. And in here is just, it's a focused moment in time, focused only on the foreground and the, the elements here. It's just gorgeous too. It just, it, it kind of, it makes you pause. It makes you take in the detail that's there on the foreground. How about that creepy smile? <laughs> Sure, yeah. Uh, the, the smile when he says so, or yes, uh, we see, uh, Griffith smiling, you know, it's not, he's not tortured or horrified or confused. He looks resolute. He looks like he's made yeah, a Yeah, and he doesn't look, head. I mean, it's just, it seems evil in context, and because we know what's coming, it almost looks like a smirk, but it, I mean, if you just look at it objectively, it just seems like a warm, content, mm -hmm. yeah, smile, like you said. He's, you know, he's comfortable in his choice. Peace of mind, yeah. you know. Right. When we get this idealized version of Griffith's face, which I always, I've always thought that was fascinating as well, is that the final moment here, or right as he makes the sacrifice, it is the idealized image of Griffith, as if it's the the ego of yeah, Griffith, the saying the words. It's not some tortured, you know, version of him, or you know, it's like this is sort of dispelling all the manipulations or whatever. This is, you know, the decision in his soul that he's making, and that's I mean, obviously represented in that smile on the next page. Yeah. And uh also worthy of note is in terms of we see the final words of uh Japanese Sasageru. Uh we just see the Geru part in the Japanese volume. So, you know, he's saying the words even though he has no tongue. He's voicing he's voicing the the moment and it's, it's an audible sound that he's making, not merely in his in his mind. We get a note of that later as to confirming that sound as well. But also, you know, just the imagery here of the dark hands just closing in around Griffith. And of course, I've written much about this final image of Griffith's face, the, the, the look he has on his face of acceptance. So we saw he's, he's, he's at peace with his decision. There's no malicious intent here. There's no evil, evil femto face here. It's not that. It's, it's the final moments of Griffith as a human. And it's not, uh, and it's, it's a willing acceptance of this reality. Some of the irony is, I mean, it's also like, 
I'm doing the right thing. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. <laughs> sure. Well, I mean, I've always, I've always seen that and it's just my interpretation of it is he's, he's, he's grateful to Guts for having brought on this far. He's grateful to him as, as a friend, but now he has to move forward with it. Now that he has his dream, you know, there's no going back. But it's wordless. Uh, you know, Guts, you know, slashes at the, the hand as it closes around him, you know, mountainous, obviously impenetrable. And then Void uh, says the promised time has come and the bundles of threads bundled by causality have been bound. And he casts the brand, which I looks like the, the, the lighting effect of it, as if he's you know creating it right there in front of him. You can see the light source strong on his head, as if this is bright, you know, I don't know what color it would be, yellow or red, above him. It's really like a spell. Uh, anyway, well, it is a spell in a way, I mean. Of course, yeah. Uh, and then it breaks apart into, you know, little swimming shapes that, you know, latch onto each of the, the Falcons. I like the, the effect of it as well. We get to see all the major lieutenants get struck by it, you know, the moments of impact, the point of impact. Guts, of course, is memorable because we've known it before. We see Cassius on her chest, Carcass's forehead, Pippin on his hand and, or his arm and Judo on his hand. And throughout this next sequence, we actually see where it landed on the others as well. It's just interesting to show that it kind of haphazardly struck them. Guts gets it as well. It's a very memorable panel, actually. Uh, Guts kind of thinking to himself, like, you know what? Uh, as the the brand is still burning on his neck, the sensation he must have. Yeah, what's interesting moment. is the first shot. We actually, it's on the opposite side of where he's being hit. We can kind of see it in just the light impacting him on the back of the neck, and then we get the right. shot of it actually right. burned in. Right. Also right. interesting is that I mean, I never thought of it before. It's not really of much note, but the casket gets the brand in the same place Guts had it in the prototype. Oh, wow, yeah. Never thought about that. Um, the following page, of course. You know, we we didn't mention it before, but during the Invocation of Doom, as you know, they put it, the apostles were kind of on the sidelines chanting that, you know, just waiting for it to be unleashed, waiting for the starting gun. And now the starting gun has been fired, and of course, they fall upon the Falcons like it just, it's like a massive flood. You know, I like how it's all in motion on that two-page you know, spread, whereas the... The house is just falling on the buffet, you know. It's like, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's a Chinese buffet. Uh, you know, the final two pages of that episode are, it's all in motion. It's a big blur of movement of this monstrous creatures, you know. You know, also like the scale of everything as well. The Falcons only occupy a small part. Even if they're in the foreground, they only occupy a small yeah. part of the, small part of the page. Whereas just towering, massive creatures are just, it's, you know, falling. It's like a them. tidal wave, you know. It's so huge. Yeah. Well, it's also, it's funny to just sort of, you know, I mean, I'm projecting emotion onto these scenes, onto the, you know, Apostles, and even onto, you know, Void, which I think I also get from the original anime, because the voice actor, you know, when the decision is made, very quickly starts reciting these lines and getting it underway, as if Void is, you know, super psyched that this is, you know, that it's happening, <laughs> like, all right, you know, and it's just very, you know... Of course, the imagery is very a, evocative as he puts his hands up, you know, and it's, you know, a very good show in addition he's to the, he's the He's the branch manager of the local Walmart on Black Friday, <laughs> opening the doors. <laughs> as uh, the following episode, you know, we see the terror and the horror. This is probably one of the most you know, horror-filled, I guess, episodes of the entire series. This is just piece by piece, you know, the apostles are just... Uh, devouring them. What I like about it is, you know, they're even tearing them amongst each other, like one person torn in two yeah. by two massive mouths, you know. It's worth, 
having difficulty sharing it's, the it's food. It's worth noting that we, we see the count on, on uh, one of these pages in this episode. For the, oh, really? I yeah. Didn't yeah, you can two, see the back of his uh, body. Yeah. On the two page, oh, on the wow. two page spread, uh, yeah, on the, you know, page oh, on the, on the right, yeah. you see. He's actually pretty prominent. Oh, yeah, you're right. Wow, you guys are awesome. Cool. Well, the, you know what? Uh, there's actually a narrator the page here. Before, where they're just showing, you know, basically a random sampling of Mira monsters. And they look almost mm-hmm. statuesque. And the, the one at the bottom is, you know, particularly interesting since it appears to have a large, you know, <laughs> like phallic penis, pe- penis basically coming out and that it's you know that it can lick itself <laughs> which is you know in a permanent position he's clearly very excited this yeah, why is he even there why isn't he just at home <laughs> yeah. if that's the case well I mean, i'd like really, to point out got... that this is probably a she you know she's got breasts and everything so yeah that's true well, that's it's true but it's, it's also, also a... It's, a, it's a penis clitoris well you know I mean. it's just you know i mean She's got Haven't boots. you ever seen a penis clitoris before? I mean, well, then <laughs> let's go by Tumblr rules, and we should ask her what pronouns she wants us to use. Okay. <laughs> what's her What's her gender identity? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, what if you're okay. one of these type of apostles, but you think you're the opposite kind of? Ah, oh, never mind. <laughs> no, just forget it. Yeah. I don't have a lot more to say about this section other than uh, Griffith. You brought up a good point, and I wanted to mention that as well as. The first page, you're right, we see them in stark, stark relief. There's no blur of mo- movement. You know, it's like they're being introduced to the individual details. Yeah, of you know, and creatures. just the black backgrounds and just, I mean, especially that first yeah. one, it looks like, you know, almost, yeah. it almost looks like the kind of armor they wear, you know. It's mm-hmm. just, uh, mm-hmm. it's. And also, you know, mouth yeah, with the mouths. Yeah. And that's also a theme throughout the series. I actually love that design. It's really, you know, the first one is really great. You know, that little, little, yeah. you know, tongue monster inside the mouth. It's just amazing. <laughs> yeah. He breaks up these pages really well, uh, throughout this whole section, you know, to show small moments of horror, you know, one by one by one. Uh, just, you know, individual little glimpses of what's happening because there's a lot happening all at once, of course. Uh, and Casca is, is wondering if this is all real, because obviously everything, all of her friends are being torn to pieces. You, you know, there's her. one, you, you know, one where there's some kind of fish monster, and as it swallows a, a guy, you know, you see it's, what to say, it's blinking in delight. Uh, it's one of the mm. most horrifying, you know, shots in the, in the whole series, I think. Oh, wow, yeah, I see uh, it. Now. The I way it's mean. like, you know, you know, you can almost feel it swallowing the guy. Yeah. <sighs> Delicious. Yeah. Pleasant dreams. <laughs> um, and it transitioned to Guts at the top of the palm, looking down on what's happening, you know. Uh, I think it's Void who's describing. Actually, you don't even know who's describing. You know, why is he even bothering describing with a brand of sacrifice? Maybe he's just reading the fine print now on, on what the, vo- the, the brand of sacrifice means. Like, you know, you, your, your flesh and blood now belong to us. Well, you know, since he can't hit, you know, he's just, you know, just talking. Sure, yeah. And they become sustenance for uh, Griffith, who is now... What I like here is, you know, Gus gets a little window into that, and I always wondered if that was figurative or literal. You know, kind of like a beacon or a, a yeah. light emanating from within the yeah. palm. You see Griffith's skin and, and, you know, not even just his skin, but also the, the helmet. I think it's uh, uh, kind of... his, you know, corporal forms that's just dissolving, you know, like everything. Yeah, it's like, like he's breaking uh, up yeah. and reforming. Yeah. 
Sure, yeah. I know what's happening. I guess I mean is, can he actually see that or not? I've always got the impression yeah, that he Yeah, I think so, because he starts trying to cut through. But yeah, yeah it is it yeah. is kind of weird. It's like, I don't know, the God Hand are either very... They're, they're actually very polite hosts, you know, very accommodating. Like, here, turn on the the transformation vision for, for our guest yeah. since he's up here. I think it might be that the light emanating from him, you know, uh, actually shines hmm. through the structure. You know, I, that's how it looks when he's putting his hands on it and trying to smash oh, it. Yeah. You know, it feels like it's, you know, Jose lighting up from inside the, the hand. So, yeah, actually, uh, the panel with Void, the tall one of Void, where Void's saying it's useless. There's a strong light source, right? Where yeah. Guts is, you yeah. know, putting this in his knife. You're right, though. I never thought about that before. Anyway, Guts is saying that he's going to get Griffith out of there. Uh, just hang on, basically. He's still adhering to having not heard what he heard. And Slon actually mentions that, yeah. that you should have been able to hear it. The last thing he said, of course. But he doesn't want to, to admit it. Yeah, and that's actually how we leave this. It actually, images run through Gut's mind of, you know, who Griffith was, the nature of him. Was he capable yeah. of doing this? He's kind of wondering yeah. to himself. He'd never say something like that, he says. But then he's struck with all the moments where Griffith talks about basically, you know, wanting to be that person, that kind of overlord type yeah. person. Well, it ends with, you know, Griffith's question to him, you know, if he thinks he's, you know, a bad person, you know, basically. And mm-hmm. obviously, Guts is reconsidering, you know, which, I, you know, it's rather specific, I think, Guts' questions, you know, is this what you wanted, you know, where it's like, well, I don't think he was imagining this <laughs> at the time, yeah, you know, yeah. but obviously maybe you should have told him, yeah, you're you're kind of an asshole, <laughs> you're kind of a bad guy, this is, I wouldn't say these are objectively good things that you're doing, maybe that would have made Griffith think twice, or at least they wouldn't have used his, you know, image in their, their cell to Griffith. Yeah, well, I think more generally, you know, the thing is like, would he have, even as a human, you know, just have, have, have them all killed, you know, so long as he could have had, you know, what he wanted? Yeah, would he have just had them all massacred in a battle or something, you know? Would that make, and, would that uh, be any better? And, yeah, I, I, actually, I think he, he probably would have, you know, I mean, if, if that had been what came to, even for Dordre, for example, it was a, a very risky thing, and even though he was favored in, in any case by, you know, the threat of causality and everything, I think he, he would have had them all killed so long. He was, as, yeah, I mean, it was basically they were gonna, you know, they were gonna prevail up against the 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 river there, or they were all gonna be massacred. So yeah, he was pretty much like, already ready to. Just like he had told Guts, you know, like he would die when he decided, and that's uh, that's what it came to in the end. It's also it's also worth noting that it didn't matter at that point. The stakes were such that Griffith was going to say yes regardless. He'd already made that decision in his mind. So that he could have been, you know, it could have been anything. He would have said yes. I just also want to point out while we're here that when Guts breaks his knife off, when he's so angry, he yeah. flies up at Ubik, who, like, you know, jumps yeah. out of the way. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I felt bad about skipping that because I was on the same train of thought, but yeah, yeah. I love it. Because it goes, <laughs> yeah. you know, and he kind of dodges you know, the knife. And it's one thing I think is worth noting is that, you know, some people actually complain uh, about the humor in the series. And especially you sometimes get people who say, like, you know, who says the humorous part, you know, can detract from the serious moments. Mm-hmm. You know, especially in more recent volumes. And the fact is, if you look throughout the series, even in the early volumes, even during the eclipse, like right now, we, we actually get little shots like that. So even as Guts is, you know, smashing his dagger, trying to get Griffiths out and, you know, 
remembering what he said and what kind of person he is, you actually get a shot of, you know, you be actually almost being hit by a, a dagger blade. So you know, yeah. and jumping out of Probably, the way. I mean, it's again, just a little like a little pratfall in the middle of all this stuff. And I mean, that's great stuff. That it's like, oh, wouldn't it be great if we could see these characters in a in a different context in a funny moment? And he puts it in there, just yeah. in the details. Yeah. Before we left this part, I just wanted to kind of weigh in on, you know, Gut's state of mind at this point. You know, he's sl- he's putting a point where we leave him here, slowly beginning to accept or understand or even question what Griffith just did. He's not immediately angry, of course, tries to rescue his friend, but he's processing what happened. And he doesn't truly process it fully. He just throws himself into anger at what's, you know, what's happening below. He just dives into the apostles that are around him. Yeah, which I actually love the shot of them. You see them crawling, you know, it's like bugs, you know, swarm yeah. of bugs. And then they arrive from a kind of, you know, it's, it's like almost from a corner of the screen, you know, like the way the panel is set. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, then he rushes at them. It's pretty, you know, and actually it's, it shows, it's again, it shows how incredible Guts is because while all the others just, you know, were devout, like standing, you know, still or trying to run away, Guts actually jumps, rushes at them, you know, he actually attacks. And, uh, and he's the only one that does, so I think it's pretty cool. Before he does that, you kind of, you kind of see a panel of him reaching out to Griffith. Well, he's got his hand he... on the wall, and you see him, yeah, removing it and kind of... It's like that moment of... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. he lets he go. Lets go. Right. right. It's also interesting in that, that panel where you see the monsters sort of hovering over him. Is I remember this one that's over on the, the right-hand side speculating that this could be Grunbeld's apostle form, you know, before, because the it kind of looks like his helmet. There's actually also, yeah. on the other side, is an actual what looks like a dragon, ironically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Volume 3, <three>, Scubber. Let <laughs> um, me get a final panel of Griffith, full page, rather, you know, as his corporeal body disintegrated. I mean, yeah, he just looks like he's totally in between what he was and what he's yeah. becoming. And then we cut away from the eclipse completely uh, to Rickert, who we left off. He was going towards that, you know, uh, the eclipse. I got, was he, he was going towards to the rendezvous point? The yeah, right. That's where he was right, supposed to meet right, them, right. I think. Or maybe they missed the rendezvous point, but he was just making his way, you know, in the direction they were. They would have. Yeah, gone he had anyway. been. Uh, yeah. He even says so. He says everyone's beyond that hill. Oh yeah, so yeah, he that's what he's. He <laughs> I mean, he's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh, what he actually sees, of course, is, you know, the giant, you know, um, yeah, tornado mystic tornado coming with, out, you know, thunder, you know, thunderbolts coming out of it. It's right, like it's actually, tornado, um, yeah. it's kind of like Orko from He-Man as well, but uh, it goes up into the, to the sun, like the, the eclipse, kind of connected somehow to the eclipse, or at least where I imagine the eclipse would be in the sky. A whirlwind, that's how, the word I was looking for. Anyway, um, and then he actually, you know, hears or sees, you know, two beings, you know, fighting in the, in the, near the horizon and, uh, looks closer and sees, you know, it's, well, he doesn't know it. Of course, it's Zod and Skull Knight having a big two page square off right around, you know, the scenery of the whirlwind with lightning flashing. And that's a hell of a two page spread too. Yeah. One of the more memorable ones, or at least one of the more, you know, very iconic for Skull Knight and Zod. Yeah. Just even the way they're sure. standing, you know, just, yeah, great poses. Yeah. yeah. What a way to end the volume. 
Yeah, definitely. Because, of course, it's like, you know, we've already been exposed to all these supernatural events, and here's two more players that are just outside. And how how are these two things going to come crashing together? All that kind of stuff. It's a great way to end it. Well, that's it, guys. Any final thoughts for Volume 12? One of my absolute favorite volumes. I mean, shit happens in this volume. I mean, it's it's right up there with 13. I mean, just... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, 13 is the aftermath, but this is the one where we sort of get the climax of, yeah, everything we've been building towards is Griffith's dream anyway. And then, yeah. obviously, the rest in 13 has implications, bigger implications for the rest of the series. It's actually a really good, it's real. It's a really good breaking point for 12 and 13 in terms of, you know, we we, we Griffith had made his decision. We're just introduced to this other conflict happening with Zod and Skull Knight, and it breaks there, yeah. and then the rest kind of continues naturally from that. I think and that's we, a good point. We don't actually get to see what happens to Guts either, and, you know. We we get to see right. him jump into the fight with essentially no weapons, and uh, you know, for someone who's been re- you know, who's reading the series for the first time, you know who he ends up as a Black Swordsman, but at this point in time, you still don't know anything. You don't know what happens to the others, you know, like mm-hmm. including the fact that Casca survives. You don't know, you know, that what Femto does to, you know, any of them. So it's a lot of things, you know, even though, you know, a lot has been revealed, there's still a lot in the, you know, left in the air, up in the air. So it's, it's actually something Mira does very often that he saves the, how to say, tastiest muzzle until the very end, you know. Well, that's where we're going to leave you guys. Thanks for tuning in and we'll be back next time with either the next episode of Berserk or volume 13.